Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Before we get to our normal podcast recording, I want to make sure that I read a statement in support of what is happening in the recent events by my fellow women of color podcasters. Here at the Wine and Cheese My Podcast, we are united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the many, many others at the hands of police. This is a continuation of the systematic racism pervasive in our country since its inception, and we are committed to standing against racism in all its forms. We believe that to be silent is to be complicit. We believe that Black Lives Matter. We believe that Black lives are more important than property. We believe that we have a responsibility to use our platforms to speak out against this injustice whenever and wherever we are to witness it. In creating digital media, we have built audiences that return week after week to hear our voices. And we will use our voices to speak against anti-Blackness and police brutality, and we encourage our audience to be educated, engaged, and to take action. Please make sure to review the show notes for links to the various places that you can take action, and I will mention some of those in the at the end of the podcast as well. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from marginalized and communities of color doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yanez. In today's episode, I speak with my friend Astrid Martinez. Astrid is a three-time Emmy-winning journalist at CBS 46 in Atlanta and hosts her own segment, Astrid in the ATL, which focuses on culture and the booming movie and music industry in the city. Astrid moved to Atlanta after spending time as a reporter in Dallas, Texas, Charlotte, North Carolina, where her work there tackled topics ranging from immigration, drug cartels, violence along the border, and human trafficking. Growing up in Colombia, Astrid saw firsthand the civil and political unrest that plagued her country. It was the type of upheaval and the people's lives it affected that first ignited her passion for storytelling and her career in journalism. With that, she has established herself as a reliable reporter in in the Atlanta area who supports communities of color and has most recently been reporting from the ground where many of the Black Lives Matter protests are happening in the area. Last September, Astrid was named one of the 50 most influential Latinos in Georgia by the Georgia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and won a Rice Award for Outstanding in Media. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme.
Hola, Astrid. I'm so happy to have you finally. I am so happy to be here. I'm so proud of you for putting this dream out into the universe and manifesting it. I know you love to talk, but now the world can hear it too. <laughs> and we're so much better off for that. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. It is, this whole thing has just really been awesome because I am so curious about so many things and so many people. And I know so many people that have really awesome stories. So you were one of the names that I had down from the beginning that I wanted to talk to, even though I've known you for a few years. Thank you, girl. And because I know that I was like, heck yeah, I want to talk to Astrid. She has (laughs) a lot of stuff and it's just, you know, we had, obviously I was in Atlanta recently. So we had the opportunity to see each other a little bit, which was so great. I love being able to actually see you. This literally happened a week before we went on lockdown. Yeah. (laughs) I am so glad we got the opportunity to do that too, before the craziness even started. I know. So, well, before we get to the chisme, we always Mm got to get to the wine before the chisme. So today, yes, today I'm drinking a Sterling Vintners Collection Cabernet Sauvignon. So, okay. Down to the details. Yes. It's a 2017. And I am drinking a red Pinot Noir Miomi. It's my go-to. It's affordable, but it has a great taste. And uh, it's the only uh, supermarket that was open that had it. (laughs) I went to, I think I got this when I went to uh, the liquor store down the street. And I I think it was like... They're still open? It's essential business? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's a liquor store and it has like, um, it's like a liquor store slash small market. Oh, I'm not judging. The yeah. liquor store, which is just a liquor store down the block from me, is open. I'm like, okay. Yes, it is essential right now. <laughs> so I'm not, I can't, I think this one was like $9.99 or something that I got from there. So salud, girl. Salud, my dear. This one is, uh, I think it's like 16, 17 bucks. Yeah, I'm not a person who spends a ton of money on wine. So, but this one that is, is pretty good. It says it has, this one it reads on the back. This is a Sterling Vintners collection built by the hand touch of our winemakers. Ooh, I like hand touches. Create a wine of balance and elegance. <laughs> Sip our Cabernet Sauvignon and savor the lush blackberry, cherry, and black currant aromas, underlined with notes of vanilla and spice. I realized that I started reading the backs of the wines because I want to know what flavors. Because I don't like great. There's certain like I don't like chocolate. I don't like grapefruit. Mm. Uh, so I don't like great caramel. So anything that you're gonna become that, a Somali, a Somali is that Sommelier? Is that how you say a Sommelier? A Sommelier. I can't even freaking talk. <laughs> so ghetto. So okay. Say it again. Well, say it again. How do som- you say it? Sommelier. Yeah, Sommelier. Take this part out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now that we've gotten to the why, we can we can definitely get to the cheese man. I really kind of want to start because you have a really very cool past. You're originally from Medellin, Colombia. And you, how old were you when you moved to New Jersey? I was six years old. I moved to Rhode Island first, Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. And then a couple years afterwards, my parents migrated to New Jersey. And what was the, I mean, I'm, we're about, we're around the same age. And I would, I would only imagine we are. I, think. I know, I know. 
I was going to cry just thinking of my age, but no. Oh, okay. It's because I've said my age a lot of times on the podcast. So. <laughs> I'm like, don't say my age. Nah, I don't care. Um, girl, we still look good. We still look good. You know what? <laughs> Latina skin. That's right. So I can only imagine just how things were in Colombia at that time. What was like the, I mean, I would imagine that's what prompted your parents to move in regards to is like the violence and a lot of stuff happening with the drug trade and stuff because everything was happening in Colombia. Is that right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There was a lot of social and political unrest, a lot of war crimes and drug crimes going on within my city, Medellin, since that was like the headquarters where Pablo Escobar lived. At that time, I had an aunt who came to the U.S. on a student visa, and she met a Puerto Rican guy, and she got married, and she petitioned for us to come to the U.S. because we could see already, you know, what was coming. Life was hard. My father I think he got robbed and kind of kidnapped in a bank once. Um, so they were oh like, my gosh, seriously? Go. oh, crazy, crazy stuff. Oh my gosh. Firsthand. And I remember, you know, walking out of the house once to go to the movie theaters. And as soon as my dad and I walked out, the bank blew up and, you know, exploded. And the next day when I, we went back, I remember just, you know, being a kid and seeing like limbs hanging from a tree. So we're like, okay, we have to go. And uh, yeah, we moved to the U.S. in about 1985, March 9th, as we arrived to Providence, Rhode Island. First, it was me and my dad, so we can get situated. And six months later, my mom joined us with my two younger brothers. One of them was about uh, two or three, and then the baby was six months old. Um, and we're so glad that my aunt petitioned for us to move to the U.S. because I believe two or three years later, Pablo Escobar bombed the Avianca airliner. And then that's when Colombia was officially put on the terrorist watch list and there was like no more visas to be handed out. Oh my gosh, that is so crazy. How was that transition movie? I mean, I'm sure obviously there was a huge element of relief when you and your dad first got here, but as I would imagine, it's also fearful because your mom and your brothers are still there. But what yeah. was that transition like coming from Colombia to the States? How, and, there, were, and there were so many layers to it, um, Jessica. There's so many layers. Part of it was, you know, my dad and I are like besties. So I was happy I to be, you know, I thought I was, I thought you know that, you know, we've been <laughs> to eat. All three of us have eaten together in Dallas. And um, he, he loves you and dearly remembers you. But yeah, so when we first traveled together, at first I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going on a trip with my dad. And I don't think I really understood what was happening. And because I think I was brought at the age of six years old, I was already kind of identifying or becoming uh, self-aware of who I was as a Colombian, you know, young girl. And then to be uprooted and taken from everything that I kind of knew already to a new country, I felt really lost at the same time. So even though I, I was safe, there was part of me that just felt um, confused and I had to find a whole new identity I thought you know at first and it was hard to navigate that life because I didn't have an older sister or someone that could really talk to me to make me feel acclimated or assimilated my parents you know this was a new journey for them as well so for a long time I was navigating uh, who I was prior to moving to the U.S. and being kind of uh, you know this new identity in a new country with a new language new people. And you're the oldest because you have two younger brothers. How were you expected to help them with their transit? I mean, obviously your youngest brother was still a baby, but mm -hmm. your middle brother, he was still a couple years old at the time. Were you expected to kind of 
help with that transition as well because you're and how was your like how quickly were you able to pick up English and everything at that point too because you're literally an immigrant you know yeah. coming you probably still don't know the language at six years old so you're having no. to learn the language probably help your parents at the same yep. time help navigate what you know you're the oldest you're having to help navigate everything that's happening from them and I'm sure having to take some sort of role just by being the oldest and being a girl with your brothers. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I, I completely get the question. There's a lot of also layers to that question, but I completely get it because it's exactly what I lived. So I remember when I came in March, uh, obviously I didn't know the language. I remember um, almost a year later, January, knowing the language because my birthday is around Martin Luther King's birthday. And I remember they played his speech on the radio back then. They used to play always the I Have a Dream speech. So I remember when one day my father turned on the radio in the car and I completely understood the whole speech. And so I remember that it took me about, you know, like nine months to know the language. I was seven years old at the time. And um, yeah, as being the oldest and learning English first, I was expected to go with my parents to a lot of different offices uh, and social services too, because when my parents were got, first got here, they, they weren't making enough money. So I was the one that had to interpret for them. I was the one that had to go with them to enroll us into school. It became a, you know, there was a lot of responsibility. And also if we came home from school, I'm the one that had to do, you know, wash the dishes. And I'm the one that had to take care of my brothers while my parents were working two different jobs. Um, it, it's something I feel like it's part of the immigrant experience that you have just been giving all this responsibility. And with that also comes the fact that, you know, your parents sacrificed so much and now you um, have to make them proud because you, they did, they gave up so much to come to a country that they barely knew. So you could be safe. What, so you came to Rhode Island. At what point did you guys move to New Jersey and what was three that? years later? Yeah, three years later, my godmother, she, what she did was she always let, um, she petitioned for a family, um, one of, she has like four sisters and seven brothers. Not all of them decided to come, but about 80%. So what she would do, she would bring, bring a family, let them live with her for about a year until they got situated. And we did that. Um, but my mom has always been a person that likes to live close to family, but not too close. You know, she likes to have her own space. So about Sounds two or three like years me. after being, yeah, it's lejitos, alejados. So about three years afterwards, my mom was like, okay, let's, let's move to New Jersey. Being next to family is cool, but you know, sometimes in Latino families and probably a lot of families, everybody just gets up in everybody's business. And um, my parents with three kids, a lot of pressure, they wanted to make sure that their marriage stayed intact and didn't let, you know, different ears influence how their journey should be. Oh my gosh. I different the mouths thing. influence their ears. Yes. No, that's what my parents would always call us like ears. Like anybody who wasn't supposed to be around, they're like, I, the ears are around. You yeah. know, like <laughs> that was your warning. The ears are around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you, so if it was three years, so you're probably about what, nine or 10 by the time you moved to Jersey. So almost. Yeah. Nine or 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Almost right middle there. school age. What was your... I think, yeah, I think I was, yeah, I think I was like a fifth or sixth grade. grade, yeah. So what was your middle school and high school experience? Because I, when I describe you and people are like, if people will see eventually, they'll see a picture and we may use some of the video and everything, but I like just looking at you and we've had these conversations like you are a bombshell. You have like bombshell looks. Oh, thank you. And like, 
people were like, damn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and I've seen pictures of you when you're younger and everything, but, and I know that when you look a little bit older or you develop a little bit more when you're in middle school or high school, that can give people different perceptions. How, like, were you somebody who kind of developed like that in middle school and high school? Or was that oh, afterwards? I was or a late bloomer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I, I look young now. I mean, at 18, I looked 13. At 13, I looked probably eight. I was a late bloomer and I was extremely self-conscious. Like I said, when I first came to this country, I felt lost, like, who am I? And I remember just, you know, looking at my cousins and didn't want to tell them about trying to copy their style. And I was always trying to be someone else but myself when I was really young. And just because I felt, I just felt like there were so many eyes on me and I didn't know if being me was the right thing to do or who, who was I really essentially. Um, so I was very thin. I felt awkward, like a ugly duckling. But it's funny because when I talked to my friends, their perception of me at that time was so different than my, the perception I had of myself. And looking back at pictures, I'm like, oh my God, I was so hard on myself. I should have been softer and kinder and gentler. But I think all of that, it, it's not a mistake. It's made me who I am today. Um, I always knew, even though I felt awkward, that I was special. So I had a lot of love for my parents. I always knew, okay, I know I'm a little awkward, but I'm going to grow up and do something and be something great. I feel like that's something very similar that a lot of successful people have in common is like that you just know regardless that they're destined for something bigger. And sometimes you don't even know what it is, but you're like, I know that there's more. I know that there's more for me. And I think it's so having the courage to just be able to dream that because so many of us and me included, like the podcast is the first time. And I know I've discussed it with you is the first time I, in my life that I feel like I'm true in my adult life that I feel like I'm truly doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I think and it's I, great that you found that. I don't think it's ever too late. I think the, the path to our purpose is different for everyone. So even though, you know, you, you're doing it now, you're probably like, oh my God, I should have started way earlier. The reason that it's happening now is for a reason. You're wiser, you're, you have, you know, this great network of friends, you've acquired all this knowledge from your, your job history. So it, it's destined to happen now. It is. So you eventually, <laughs> you eventually entered the pageant world right <laughs> um, you, it's a south american thing you can't you can't not okay so i need to hear how this happened because i i don't think i i mean me and you have discussed it and stuff but i feel like you've never really talked about it so i need to hear like, like thousands of years ago <laughs> but still this is like a, this is still something that really influenced your life at some yeah. point so i i need to hear like how that happened and what was the the progress of all of that okay so, you know how you were saying that, you know, you and your adult life are, is, you know, you're finally doing what you really love. Mm -hmm. Well, since I was four years old, I knew I wanted to be on TV. I knew I wanted to be on TV. I knew I wanted to tell stories. I would tell all my friends, which is funny, my elementary friends tell me now, I remember sitting on the front stoop and you're like, I'm going to be on TV one day. Mm -hmm. And I just knew it. So part of the pageantry is just, you know, it's in the, it's in the Latino blood, right? We, we grow up, it's such a big part of our culture to sit down around, you know, Miss Universe time or Miss Columbia time, Miss World time to 
sit there and watch these women and their answers because I think it's a way to bring our culture to the universe. So part of me thought of it like, okay, I, I'm Colombian. I live in this in the U.S., but I want to represent my culture. And at the same time, I felt like this could have been this could be a stepping stone for my future career. So I remember hearing on the radio once, the Colombian radio station, that they were holding auditions for Miss Columbia USA, which you you know then could lead to Miss World, and. I was like, okay, I have to do this. I was, already, I think I was already 19, 20 years old. It was a perfect time. It was at a time where I was feeling a bit more confident about myself. And I also wanted to learn about myself and, and have a lot of female friends. Growing up in my teens, I didn't have many. But as I started getting you know, more self-confident, the, the friendship bond between females uh, became a really important topic for me in my life and something that I wanted to explore and have more of. And I thought this was the perfect way so I went to Queens, from Jersey to Queens with my dad, auditioned, and I loved it. The pageant people loved me and went through the whole process. And it was, to be honest, truly incredible. Nerve-wracking because all the answers and questions, I mean, all the questions and everything was in Spanish. Mind you, I had already been living here for like 18 years or 15 years. I don't go off my math. I'm a journalist, not a mathematician. <laughs> but, you know, more that. than a decade. <laughs> Um, and so it was fun and a typical Colombian thing. There was a bomb scare the freaking first day. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. I know. It's so crazy, but I had a great time. Uh, I took home the prize. I also won, uh, most, you know, Miss Congeniality. Me, the girl who didn't really have a lot of girlfriends growing up, all of a sudden has a handful of female friends and it just felt amazing. So what happened from that? Did you go to Worlds or anything from... No, I didn't. I went to college because um, all the, the events took place while, I, while school was going on. And I remember, you know, going back to that initial feeling that when you come to this country, you have to make something of yourself to make your parents proud. And what I loved about that feeling was, one, my parents were very supportive. They were never like, you have to do this. You know, most parents, when they come from a different country, become a lawyer, become a doctor, because they want something sure, something secure. Whereas my parents were like, I don't care what you do, just go to school. And so for me, giving up like one or two years of school to go on a pageant, maybe you maybe could have been more lucrative. Who knows? But at that time, my mind was like, no, I have to go to school. So, I so what would you say one of the biggest lessons you learned from the pageant world was? Uh, Self-confidence and how valuable friendship is. It's, it's a community that is so important. It lifts you up and it's lifted me up during times where I didn't even believe in myself. So prior to that, like I said, I didn't have a lot of female friends. There was always like jealousy or, you know, sometimes in the Latino world, um, they don't really teach you a, that friendship is um, the number one thing. It's always like finding love, like finding your mate. That was like the number one lesson that I felt was ingrained to me. So friendship was, you know, something that was, you know, it was cool, but it wasn't a, a priority for me. So that the pageantry world just taught me how important friends are going to be for you the rest of your life. So then you decided to go back to school. Where did you end up going to school from there? Montclair State University. I already had a degree for English. So I knew that my passion was journalism. So then I went back to school, used my degree for English to teach kindergarten, to pay for school while I got my uh, journalism degree with concentration in Latin American studies. So at what point, because then obviously you meet your baby daddy, 
So I met my daughter's dad and it's such a funny story because, you know, he was the first love of my life. I would say that he was my first pure love. I'd had crushes before that, but the way it happened, I felt was, it was meant to be. I was 20 years old and it was right after the pageant. Uh, we were celebrating, I think, the fact that the pageant, I'd never been to spring break. My parents are super strict. Of course. Um, <laughs> so I was like 20 years old and I'm still not allowed spring break. No, I'm going to break free my rebellious self. <laughs> so my friends and I decided we're going to go. We took my car, packed it up and drove to Florida. And one of the nights, the last night we checked out. There was that was the year that Freak Nick was canceled here in Georgia in Atlanta. So there was tons of people, but also tons of crimes happening because I think the city was just overwhelmed. So when we checked out of the hotel, we went to go to my car to, you know, drive back home and somebody had to hit my car. It was a drunk driver. And a person from across the street in the hotel saw it and they, and they gave me down the license plate and everything. So I had to call police because they were so um, overwhelmed and concerned with higher, you know, risk crimes. They're like, it's, I remember it was 10 o'clock at night and they're like, oh, we'll be there at eight in the morning. I was like, eight in the morning? What the fuck am I going to do till then? So <laughs> me, I was like, let's go to the club. <laughs> so me and my girl, dance it off. <laughs> yeah, I was like, let's just go dance it off for the next four or five hours. So me, I remember me and my girls and my best friend, this guy Caesar, was just like, let's go to the club. Went to the club. I saw this really like handsome Latino guy with curly hair, you know, his cut, you know, at that time in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. And I was his Tim's and his jeans. I was like, oh, he cute. <laughs> and he thought I was pretty too. So I felt like I felt amazing. And we start dancing. And he's like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm Colombian. He's like, I'm Colombian too. And I was like, whoa, sparks even, you know, get bigger. And he's like, where do you live? I'm like, Jersey. He's like, me too. <laughs> And we're like, okay. And he's like, what town? I'm like, Elmwood Park. He's like, me too. What? Let me see your li-. He's like, let me see your license. My boys put you up to this. I'm like, no. And I showed him my license. And we're both from the same city. And it was just like, we never met before. Mind you, he had been living in Miami for like about a year. Uh, but he was going to move back to New Jersey in a month. So we just couldn't believe we didn't know each other. And we kept in touch through AOL Instant Messenger. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I remember AOL. <laughs> And I just knew from the moment we met, like this guy was going to be something special. And his family got along great with my family. We dated for years and years and years and years. And then three years after dating, we had Jolie. We stayed together for a few more years after that. Then it was like on and off because I started moving around for work. And it was just off. Still, you know, obviously family. We have a great daughter together. So I feel like he, he was meant to come into my life to teach me pure love and also to be the daddy to my daughter. So after you had Jolie, who is, mm-hmm. you know, who I've only been able, I've not been able to meet in person, who I've only talked to through FaceTime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how did my mini. Yes, yes. Um, how did that affect your career and your career goals? Like, where did you start your career? Was it able, were you able to stay in Jersey with Jolie or how did that kind of, how were you able to manage that? How were you, how did that kind of affect your whole career trajectory at the very beginning? Well, it completely changed my life. As soon as I got pregnant with her, I felt like mother earth just like ascended inside of me and took over. And I just felt so empowered and I had these, my visions just became bigger And I think that's when kind of I knew her dad and I weren't going to last because he would tell me like, you know, after you graduate college, just stay here, work at a bank and we can get married like three years later. But my vision 
for myself was so much grander than that, that I was like, okay, we're definitely going to grow apart. So I was still in my senior year of college when I had her and I graduated. Jolie was actually at my graduation. She was about like seven months old. And once I had her, I knew that I couldn't stay in New Jersey because I didn't have the experience yet to be like a number one market in TV and I had to move. So I started moving around with her. And even, you know, things were so difficult. I remember my first job in South Florida was making $25,000, no health insurance with a baby by myself. And moments that I cried and I wanted to give up, but she gave me the strength to persevere and to be resilient because for me, there was no other option but to succeed. I had a daughter that I wanted to make proud. I didn't want to be broke and poor. Like I knew what that felt like and that's not the best feeling. And so she just made sure that I, that I stayed on track, kept fighting. And I'm also a gypsy, you know, I believe in love. So sometimes I would meet guys and get all these crushes and start thinking like 10 years down the line, I could see myself with them. But if it wasn't for her, I would have moved to so many different countries from different people that I've met. So she kept me grounded, like, okay, that is not a possibility. That is not reality right now. I have to stay here and stay focused. Was there ever the conversation of your of Joe of Jolie's dad moving with you or was it always like no this is where I'm at this is where I want to be especially if you took a job in Florida in South Florida he lived in Miami I mean I'm sure it's something he was maybe if it wasn't in Miami it was something he was familiar with was there ever those well and that, I lived in South I lived in um, Naples which is like uh Southwest Florida but that's not even the issue with him when I, when I met Joey's dad, he was very much like a mama's boy. And, I, and I'm not saying that in a bad thing, but he liked to be close to family, which I love family too, but I was much more of a traveler. I'm more independent because of the fact that I'm the oldest and I'm the only girl. He's the only boy, but he's the baby of the family. Oh, yeah. So he has two, yeah, he has two older sisters. So he was always like, let's just stay here in Jersey. And he already started his own business. So for him, it was beneficial to be in New Jersey, whereas me, for myself, I could not start my career in New Jersey. I've, I tried. I sent out like hundreds of resumes and was nobody would take. So it wasn't um, until Florida. And yeah, so that wasn't a possibility. And then I also knew that we were just growing apart. I also felt young, like I didn't have enough wisdom in my archives, in my mental archives to deal with just graduating college, being a new mom, going through postpartum depression, uh, taking on a relationship at, you know, as a as a married couple, I was not ready for that yet. And so the best thing and the healthiest thing was to separate. We always stayed friends. I mean, mind you, you know, we bicker uh, because that energy has transformed from love to like brother and sister to now, you know, we co-parent, but it, it just, um, it changed. And I always knew that the best thing, the healthiest thing would be to raise Jolie like that as two people who never had to fight in front of her. And she wasn't raised in an unhealthy environment. So it worked out for us. So you touched on postpartum depression, and I know it's mm -hmm. different for everybody. How did you know that you were, something's really different? Like, how was your postpartum depression experience? Yeah, I remember even with him, and he, you know, I, we would, he would tell me a joke, and we would start laughing, and five seconds later, I would just cry for no reason, and I was like, oh, there's something, there's something off. And my hormones were all over the place, and I had a lot going on. I was in my, I said, my last year of college, I was working at a bank part-time like a teller and I was being a mom. I was trying to be a wife at 25, which to me is really young. You know, first, you know, for some people it's not, totally. but for me it was a lot. Yeah. Because I had a lot going on. So, you know, I remember just being in the shower and just tears would come or there would be bouts of extreme happiness. 
so I knew I was not in balance and, and then I would just overanalyze everything in my life. Like, am I really going to make it? Did I just waste four years of school and get pregnant for no reason? Am I going to become this Latina statistic? All these things that just kept going through my mind that, that typically would not be there because I had a little bit more confidence than that. But because I just, I was so emotional, I, I couldn't stop these negative thoughts from entering my being. Were you ever able to to see anybody to talk about that? Or was that something that you just tried to deal with on your own? I did. I dealt with it on my own. To be honest, I've never, I can't say I never went to therapy. I went to therapy like one time because that's what my insurance paid for. And then I had to pay for the rest. So then I didn't go back. But thankfully I'm in a career where I get to interview a lot of people. So I've met life coaches through it. I've met therapists and they've become my friends. So I just chalked it out. And I'm just a person too, who's always been like a go-getter a fixer and I've always believed in, believed in the spiritual world and something higher than myself. And I, I read so much. These are things that I did on my own without anyone telling me about it. I just read, I knew that there was something wrong. I, I knew that postpartum was postpartum. I, I watched a lot of movies, a lot of TV. So just life experiences informed me that there was something off and they also helped me talk to myself and journal and work through them. So once you're, how long did you end up staying in uh, South Florida for that first job? So in South Florida for three years, and then I got laid off. Uh, the show, the show that I was, I was co-hosting a morning show. It was like a, a talk show, and they wanted to hire a guy because it was two girls, uh, two females. So they hired a guy. I was laid off, and then my next job was in South Texas um, by the border of Harlingen and Reynosa Matamoros, which is a big area at the time when I was there for cartel crimes. Mm -hmm. So I went there to anchor a Spanish evening newscast and also produce another one, uh, produce the English one and anchor the English one and cover immigration and border crimes. And Jolie's traveled everywhere with me. I was in South Texas for two years. And then from there, because I mean, obviously, as you know, I know obviously, I mean, you know, (laughs) obviously I know you, but I know a lot of news people and I know you guys you know, go from market mm-hmm. to market in order to yeah. So that was market eighty one. Yeah, it was market eighty one, but it was great because I I was doing a morning show, which was kind of fluff, to finally getting this news uh, credit notch under my belt, and I and it's it was trial by fire because I had to shoot my own work, edit it, produce, anchor in Spanish and English, but it was great learning experience. Definitely a culture clash from New Jersey to go to South Texas where everybody's just Mexican or Mexican-American. I'm the only Colombian. I can't find Colombian food. I mean, you know I love Mexican food and tacos. <laughs> Let <laughs> me just South say, Texas, this girl can put down tacos like nobody's business. <laughs> I'm petite, but I can compete. <laughs> you, yes, you can. I think you can out-taco me when it comes to the amount of tacos. <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and I love it, but I'm also a person that's never liked to be in a place where there's just one culture. I love to be in a diverse environments. That's how I grew up in Jersey with Macedonian friends, Polish friends, Italian, Cubans, Puerto Ricans. So even when I'm in Miami sometimes for too long, I'm, I'm like, okay, too many Cubans, too many Colombians. I need to be around more people. So in South Texas, it was really difficult. It was a culture clash uh, and you know, it's kind of a forgotten part, I felt, of the U.S. There's not a lot, there wasn't at the time a lot of, you know, green, talk about green food or organic or healthy, but I, but I met great people, great friends that I'm still friends with till this day and the most loyal viewers ever. From there, I went to Charlotte, 
North Carolina market 24. So I did a big jump market 81 to market 24. And you had a pretty, like, I think Charlotte, you were there for a while, but towards the end of Charlotte, I know you had a pretty challenging time, which I'm sure I'm, you know, I would love for you to kind of say what that growth was because it was a must it was a painful Charlotte was one of the most painful places I've lived in because you had a lot of I was about to say because it wasn't just professionally it was personally so yeah if you don't mind kind of whatever you would like to get into in regards to that I'm an open book (laughs) (laughs) I mean obviously I know because we've talked about it but I just think there's so much wisdom that people can get obviously I've even referred other reporters to you in regards to like the stuff that I know you you've gone through in that because mm-hmm. obviously if you didn't go through what you did there you wouldn't have gone to Dallas and we would have never met I know. so I'm kind of yeah. grateful for all of that so God, why don't you go ahead sure. and kind of explain so sure. let me wrap up these three years of Charlotte I lived there for three years and at first it was great like I was the girl that everybody was excited to have at the station I was getting all these cool stories it was awesome But I also was new, you know, I'd only been in one market prior to that. And I think because uh, the market in South Texas was small, I was able to make a lot of mistakes and not a big deal. And there wasn't as much required. So when I got to, when I arrived to Charlotte, news-wise, after like about a year, it, it was really intense and I was getting put on harder stories and I started doubting myself. And I don't think it wasn't that I was not good. I was learning for sure. And it would have been great to have a mentor, but I started really doubting myself. And then once I let those doubts creep in the cracks, the cracks just kept getting bigger and bigger and it almost became paralyzing. So around that time that I started doubting myself, I fell completely in love with uh, this Charlotte Hornets baseball basketball player who I met while I was in seeing an event. And I remember seeing him and my heart was like, this guy is going to hurt me. Like I just knew it, but I wanted to be in love with him so bad. And he also felt like from what he tells me that this was like the most beautiful girl and we were, we we're going to be together. So then we started dating and part of that dating, I felt so seen and validated that this man of high stature, liked me and cared about me all while I was feeling all this self-doubt at work. So I wanted this relationship to kind of fill this void that I was feeling or these insecurities that I was feeling, um, which wasn't good. And so little by little, I started concentrating more on the relationship and and the work situation. My work started sliding, but then my relationship wasn't great because I was dating someone who um, some things for him were permissible to behave a certain way because he was in a world that no one says no to him. So now I find myself really questioning who I am because I'm a person that's always lived with integrity. And I remember waking up some mornings and saying like, you know, I would not forgive this from a regular guy. Why am I forgiving this from this guy? And then I would always, you know, you always make excuses because you want to make it work and you could only take so much. And I remember one day just waking up and saying, I don't even recognize you, Astrid. And that meant more to me than being with this ultra successful, super gorgeous man. So once that relationship started deteriorating to me, it was like, I went through like the biggest depression. And not only that, at the same time that all this was happening, my work schedule changed so much that I had to send my daughter to live in New Jersey because now I was working nights and weekends. And I think my station did that on purpose because I wasn't getting along with my boss 
because I wasn't really doing great. And the perception became that I didn't care, but I did care. I was just going through so much. I was going through a mental breakdown, to be honest with you, but I didn't know how to tell it to people, nor, you know, should have, I don't, I don't know. I only told it to my brother. And so I said I had to send my daughter away, felt a lot of super guilt about that. My relation, I was trying to hold on so tight to this relationship that wasn't working, that fell apart. And then while all that's going on, then my job is falling apart. But coming out on the other side of it has been incredible. And I know that everything that I went through in those three years was some of the biggest lessons that I had to, to become uh, more self-confident, to become more loving of myself, to not need validation from anyone, to know that I actually am a gift to someone and to value myself more. It's just so, so many lessons. And also just to show up in honesty, to show up in honesty, to show up in who, as, as the person that I am, which I know now, I, I feel like magic. So when I show up in a relationship, I only give this magic of myself to very few people and selective. And obviously if they mess up, they mess up. But I, I, I feel like you're getting a gift here. So use it wisely. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that let, yeah, so that led me to be unemployed because I couldn't be in that city anymore. I had to leave Charlotte. I couldn't see like, you know, my ex playing or hearing his interviews on the radio. It was just too much. And I needed a life break. I was going nuts. I went home for a little while and there was a time where I went, you know, I felt like, you know, who's going to want me right now? You know, I don't, I don't have a job. I'm 30 something. I'm back home rethinking my life. And am I even really good at my job? And all of a sudden, like six months later, it took six months for me to like get my next job was Dallas. And I was like, what the hell? Market five wants to hire me after I kind of almost effed up in market 24. But it was a saving grace. And I, I took it as like, you know, the world's God's second chance to really focus on me, to, to build myself back up a foundation and to get stronger in every aspect of my life. So when I went to Dallas, I was like, I'm going to get this done. I went there with all this fire in my belly. I took it as the, the biggest second chance ever. And, um, and it was definitely the turning point for where, I'm at, for where I'm at today. I mean, I remember us having a conversation before where you were telling me about Charlotte and you were saying how you felt like you, like, just like you were saying that you were unhirable, that you didn't know who was going to hire you after all after all of the stuff that went down in Charlotte, just feeling like you had left with a, with a bad reputation, basically. Mm-hmm. And you, yeah. And it was happen. also a city that I wasn't happy. And like, I couldn't be myself. I remember there were no Latinas in my news station. There was one, but she left, you know, a little bit after I started, I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel heard. There's just so many other things. I didn't feel comfortable in this Southern town that was like, you know, you'd go to church and be like, bless your heart. And then as you walk away, they're talking crap. And, and I was just like, this, this city, everything about that place was wrong for me. So and I think that's why I love Atlanta so much, because I can post a picture of me being me, me being this very passionate and I'm a spicy Latina who's also educated and spiritual and who loves family and who loves love. And the city gets it. But I think it also gets it because I stand up for myself. I didn't stand up for myself in Charlotte. But um, so, you know, everything's also relative. Everything's also timing. So there was just so many things mentally, physically, personally that were not meant to work out in Charlotte. And I think that's for a reason. So when you came to Dallas, what was your intention? Because you came to Dallas as a freelancer. 
Mm-hmm. for the NBC station there. What was your like true goals? Cause I know you also didn't bring Jolie because you were coming as a freelancer and I know how much mm-hmm. guilt you would, you carried with yourself. How did you first of all balance that? Because she's in Charlotte with you. You have to, because of your schedule change. And I'm sure a lot of, you didn't want her to see this relationship or how you were handling these things with the relationship. I can only imagine as a mother, what, cause obviously, you know, I'm not a mom, but I can only imagine like the guilt you would have. Like, I love oh, this crazy person guilt. and I'm trying to figure this out, but I don't want my daughter to see yeah. me losing my shit over a man. Yeah. Like, how do you balance right. that? <laughs> so the great thing is that I have an amazing family and she has a great dad. So when the schedule started to change, you know, he was like, send her to live with me. I want to also, you know, help her with homework. I've never done that. And I needed the break, but I didn't send her away because I needed the break. I needed to just figure life out without traumatizing her. And um, I've done an amazing job up until then of doing it on my, not on my own, but by myself. So yes, there was a lot of guilt, but I'm, I'm so glad that she, I got it. And I picked a great father. He's a great man. Obviously it didn't work out, but he's a great man. He's a great father. He he dotes on his daughter. And I love that. So I had to do that. I had to send her there. Tons of guilt. I still feel guilty to this day. You know, she was living with me here for uh, last year and she went back home in August because she just felt lonely in Atlanta and she has a stepsister and a half brother. So I feel guilt to this day, but I still feel super connected. And like my best friend is my daughter because we've worked on that relationship. Um, but I went to Dallas, not with the intention of staying there because, you know, her dad and I had, had a conversation that if you want to live with her, I don't want her to be anywhere else but the East Coast. So go there, you know, get your chops together, you know, like get your, your, your gravitas back, get your confidence back, and then try to get a job in the East Coast. So I went there also just filling in for some of the anchors who were pregnant. It was always with the intention that I was only going to be there for like about a year. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to kick ass, get the best reel ever. I remember the news director there, you know, just always told me you're good. You just need more confidence. And when he said that, I was like, man, this guy in a top five station thinks I'm good. Whereas my news director didn't talk to me like that in Charlotte. I was like, shit, I must be good. And I, once I started believing in myself, everything changed. The doors opened for everything. Life just seemed, you know, more amazing. Goals seemed more attainable. And right when the time was up for me to leave Dallas, mm-hmm. <laughs> you were there. It was time for me to start auditioning for other stations. And then I get Bell's palsy. but it's because you ran yourself ragged let's be real you applied for this like fellowship thing that took you to Israel so you were all over you were gone for what 10 days I think yeah I was gone for two weeks and then I've never experienced like allergies in my life so I remember being really sick before I left in Dallas like crazy allergies my ears were hurting and then partying because I was in a brand new city. And, you know, I like to have fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, was, I like to have fun. I like to go out. So it was this combination to this long-ass flight to Israel where, yes, we were working, but we were also partying. You know, the, the journalists at night, we were having all kinds of wines and different events because they wanted us to get the most out of this trip. So my body took a beating for about three to four weeks. And on the trip back, you know, I just felt my ears ringing like, if they were going to bleed, I remember it just felt like this hot burning sensation. And the crazy thing is I had read about an anchor in New York who had, you know, recovered from Bell's palsy. 
and all the symptoms that he was, you know, he wrote about, I started feeling them. I remember telling you like, oh my God, my eye, I can't blink my eye. And you're like, maybe you're dehydrated. And I was well, like, cause I, well, you had just picked you up from the airport, right? I picked you up from the airport and you're just like, oh my gosh, my eye. So, because that's always the very first thing that I try and do is mm-hmm. like just anything. It's, I always start with water. Right. Yeah. And I was like, nah, bitch. I got that, those problems. <laughs> that, you're dehydrated. That affects everything else. But you're just like, no, no, I know it's more. And you didn't even go home. You're, you're just like, I'm just going to stay here. I stayed with you. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I stayed with you. And I called a great friend of mine who is a doctor. And I, and I didn't have a job anymore because my freelance finish, I didn't even have a, you know, insurance. But I always have angels like yourself, like so many friends. And that's why I'm telling you, like, friendship you know, has saved me in so many occasions. I called this doctor and his wife and I was like, Hey, I don't have health insurance, but I think, I think this is what I got. Can I come over? Can you check me out? You know, I'll pay. And he and his wife came to your house, checked me out and brought me the medicine for free. And I was just, it was, I don't know. I felt touched by an angel, but also like, what the fuck is going on with my face? (laughs) But um, thankfully, I caught it early because I read that article. And I'm typically not a hypochondriac, but I knew the moment that my eye was twitching and tearing and nonstop tearing, I was like, I have Bell's palsy. No, you're totally right. I actually had an interview with somebody else, and she she's Colombian as well. She's una colombiana. And she, had, <laughs> she was diagnosed with... Now all of a sudden I forget, not multiple sclerosis, not multiple. Now all of a sudden I just totally forgot. Well, I she, was, she was, she was saying it all starts in your eye. And the reason your eye starts twitching is it's a result of stress. Yeah. Well, the yeah. nerve was so swollen that when it, when it's swollen, it doesn't work. It's paralyzed. So it gets inflamed. And when it gets inflamed, it stops working. And that's why the whole face droops. And I, then that's why I had no idea that that was an indicator. So uh, my eye doesn't twitch very often, but when I do now, I've realized, oh, I'm, what's happening? Like, it's almost like a way to check in with myself. Yeah. Like, am I too stressed out? What's happening? Do I need to take a step back? But yeah. I mean, obviously you went through that and then you, you know, within, you know, not too much later, you were on your way, your parents had moved to Atlanta and you're like, you decided that that's where you wanted to be because at this point you still didn't have a job. So I think you were going between your parents' house outside of it. Well, yeah, we bought a house, bought a house for my parents in Georgia prior to me even coming here because I knew that this is where I wanted to be. And my parents wanted to retire here. So we helped, we helped them do that. And I always wanted to actually live in Atlanta because I knew CNN was here. Plus it's in the East coast. And I was like, perfect. Move to Atlanta. I'll be reunited with my daughter again. Let's do it. They've been coming here already with 10 years of, news um, under my belt I had to take a job as an MMJ which means shoot your own camera work and edit and report and the news director who hired me said you know you're never gonna have to do it we just have to hire you with that because we don't have any other position available which really is just you know code for we're gonna pay you less Um, and I was like you know what this is a sacrifice and I've always felt like that so that's when I talk to reporters and they're like I'm a year into my career I can't I'm not gonna take a step back I'm like dude you have to sometimes pay your dues over and over again. Here I am at like 35, 36, coming to a new city, never having to done, really do camera work except for that first job ever, doing it again, right? When, I'm, when I should be, you know, already at this point in my career. But it's a sacrifice. I wanted to be close to my family. I wanted to be in Atlanta. I knew this was a city that had a lot of different big, you know, news hubs, and I could possibly thrive there because I knew I had the talent now and I had the confidence. I was armed. 
So I moved here and the first, actually the first year and a half was a miserable AF, miserable AF, because I was doing that. And when my news director actually got fired before I started, so the new one that started, he made me do my camera work. He made me edit, which is really incredibly difficult. You don't learn that in two weeks. You know, camera guys take years to become a camera guy. Which is crazy that... You know, MMJ, for people that don't know, stands for multimedia journalists. And like you said, they shoot their own stories, they produce their own stories, they edit, do camera, everything, which is a way for people like news stations to keep payroll down. But if you're doing all that, you should actually be paid more because you're the one who's doing it. Yeah, but you're looked at as less. Yeah. Because so, so, okay, that happens. And then um, I hated it for the first year and a half. And I cried. I remember telling my agent, like, what the F did I do that I'm at the city? She's like, Astrid, we're going to try to get you out of there. Don't worry. And I just, like, I couldn't understand, like, why would God bring me here to make me feel this way? You know, after Charlotte. I was doing so great in, in Dallas, but I couldn't be in Dallas because then I couldn't be with my daughter. And I was just like, man, maybe this career is not for me. So it was actually like I was going to give up. And I was already starting to look at, doing jobs like a PIO, a public information officer for schools, which is usually the ones that we interview when something happens at schools. And I actually make more money than MMJs. So I was already starting to look into that when all of a sudden my news director gets fired. And I was like, and I only had six months left in my contract. So the news director gets fired, the new one starts. And I just pitch him this idea that I had. I'm a person, you know, that I know one of my attributes is that I, you know, that I'm pretty, I'm pretty female. And because of that, and I also think because I'm kind and I'm, and I'm honest, I've been able to really network and I, I draw people to me. So I already had met all these celebrities. You know, I went to Paris with Ludacris for his 40th birthday and um, I had all these contacts and, and I knew that the industry was booming. So I pitched this idea to my boss. I said, listen, we're missing this in Atlanta. There's red carpets going on every day. All these you know, movie stars are here, these musicians. And I am really good at, you know, being in their presence without the wives feeling intimidated or them feeling awkward. But I want to stop you really quick because you're missing this whole thing, which shows like your ambition and your Mm -hmm. tenacity to get what you want because you you. were friends with the chef of Ludacris who was going to Mm -hmm. Paris and he invited Mm -hmm. you to go with him as his guest. You Mm -hmm. pitched that to your news director as, hey, mm-hmm. I have this opportunity to go to Paris. You made the, you created the opportunity for yourself. Yeah. I think as women and as Latinas, we don't always do that, take that opportunity to do that. You mm-hmm. created the opportunity and said, hey, I have this. If I get a story from this, will you pay for my ticket? Yeah. And yeah. he literally was like, oh, we'll reimburse you. If you pay for it and you come back with something that we can use then yeah. we'll pay for it. So I think yeah. that's- So I pay for everything. Key, yes, I think yeah, that's a very yeah. key I, thing. I, thank you. Thank you for reminding me that. Because I forget, like sometimes I just think like it's normal, but yeah, it was, I created it for myself. So I was going to go to Paris and I told my boss, I was like, listen, I'm going to go to Paris. I go to Paris and I come back with stories and contact. Let's create a segment called Astrid and the ATL. And I did that specifically. So in case I ever was let go or I ever left, they couldn't use my segment without me in it. <laughs> right. So I went to Paris and I made contacts and I came back and I did stories. I became friends with people. I interviewed Oprah because of all these connections that I made. And my boss was like astonished. Mind you, I never got my money back, but I did get my <laughs> days uh, taken. Like instead of the days you know, I took off as vacation, I got them back so I could take vacation again later on. But um and that's how my segment was launched by me, myself, grassroots, 
going out into the community, making a lane for myself. Nothing was done. I created this space. I created Astrid in the ATL. Obviously, I thank my boss so much because he gave me the platform. He gave me the opportunity. But I figured, like, this is do or die. If this news director comes and my contract ends in six months, I'm going to be like a 37-year-old something. Like, I felt like would have wasted her college years, would have wasted all these years of news. And I did not want to be a PIO. I just felt like I had to take that job. So I created it, and I poured everything into it. Finally, you know, I was able to get my daughter to come live with me live right now is the best that it ever could be. And I just live in such gratitude every day because I see all these blessings unraveling and manifesting that I've worked so hard for, for 10, 11 years. And now in the last two, three years, you know, I've won Emmys. I am respected and loved in the community and I love the community back. So it's like now I'm reaping all the benefits of all the mierda I went through. <laughs> I mean, I think that's awesome because, you know, I met you in a really, I think, interval time in your life <laughs> in Dallas and everything. And you come across very, very confident. Then, But then when I got to know you, it's like I got to know like the real Astrid mm-hmm. and I got to hear your insecurities and your, you know, like the things that you were scared of and your transition coming from Charlotte. And it really made me realize because a lot of times people look at somebody who is, you know, who seems to kind of have it all. And that's in any mm-hmm. industry or any person, or we just look at people by what they look like and think, oh, they must have everything that they want. And I know that there's things that you still want for your life. And I know that there's still things that you're like, you're still reaching for. So just to be able to share that and and see the transition in you and the confidence in you, how that's grown since I've known you, I love seeing that. How do you think Latinas are perceived in news, particularly in English speaking news versus Spanish speaking news? Well, I want to go back to that that thing, like you come across so self-confident. It's funny because when I've been interviewed by other friends, like high school friends or college friends, they always say like, when you walked into the room, even in high school, you commanded a present, like you seem so sure. And it's so funny because the whole time I'd be inside like, oh, I'm biting my nails. Me, I was so insecure. And it's crazy the perception or the image that I put out. And I think it's the image of who I wanted to be, but I wasn't there yet. And I'm definitely there now. And I'm there now because of, you know, life and, and really putting in the work to know myself. The perception of Latinas in the news, I think it depends on who you ask. Because for me, working in markets where there were not a lot of Latinos like Charlotte, I mean, in, in Dallas, yeah, I mean, in South Texas, yes, there's a lot of Latinos, but there's also differences within Latinos. I would be criticized sometimes, like, oh, you don't speak Mexican. I'm like, well, I, we all speak Spanish. I don't have a, like a dialect in Mexican. So I have Colombian, and some people would embrace this, and some people wouldn't. So you, you're always, like, constantly fighting if you're Latina enough or not Latina enough or you're, or you're this Latina or not Latina. And when it comes to the English media, I never felt seen in Charlotte. I never felt understood. So I think that that's why diversity is so important, not only for people on camera, but for people that are making decisions in the newsroom about what stories are getting told, which there wasn't. It was always white males or white females that were in charge of making the decisions of stories. So I never felt comfortable. I never felt um, championed. And in Atlanta, I definitely feel that. 
there's stereotypes too that if you're pretty you should go work at Univision and that's like comments that I would get which I don't think it's a, a bad comment but I don't get where that comes from they're like oh you're so pretty you should work at Univision I'm like well why can't I work at an English you know speaking station <laughs> well I mean I don't I don't I don't get what that means I know that I've had to prove myself I felt that I deserved a place in the Univision that I didn't get there because I was pretty or um, I didn't get there just because of the diversity hire so those are things that I felt I've had to prove as a brown person in the media. You were named one of the 50 most influential Latinos in Georgia by the Georgia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. How did that make you like, was that some like validation for you? How did that make you feel when that happened? And is that, was that something you were able to share with Jolie as well? Yeah, um, it, it was. And she's so proud. She's so sweet. My daughter thinks I'm amazing, and then I think she's incredible. Uh, it's not validation, but I felt just so honored because I want to lift my community. And it's so funny because when I've dated other minorities, it, it was just, um, for them, it was like the normal thing to do. But sometimes dating outside my race, and, and they, you know, and I talk to guys who, who, who are not Latino that I date, and they see this stuff at first, you know, if they've never had a minority experience, it's, it's different for them. But when they see how much passion I put into why I need to lift my community up and then they lift me back, it just, uh, it just feels like so, I feel so honored and so grateful because now that I feel so empowered, now that I've come full circle, the first thing I want to do is make sure that I give back, that I give back, that, I, that I'm able to tell their stories, to tell our stories, you know because who better to tell our stories than us? And for them to recognize that, to recognize that in any opportunity that I'm able to intersect the English speaking language, you know, English speaking medium of news with a Latino story, I try to do that. So for them to see that and acknowledge that, I just felt, I just felt so humbled. What would you, what advice would you give to any women who are kind of struggling with that confidence issue and not feeling like not understanding their worth like what would you say is the most important factor in figuring out what your worth is and how to be able to move forward in whatever they decide to do i think if you have a dream in you that you want to be something it's because if god already has put that vision inside of you that means that it's attainable so you just have to believe in yourself when i couldn't believe in myself I reached out to people that believed in me. My friends would tell me, I see something better for you. Even when I didn't see that, my family members would tell me, I see something more, even when I didn't believe in me. So surround yourself with people who lift you, who when you are your most down and outs, they you know lift you up on their shoulders. And I would just say, that's the key. The key is to have a support of people that love and want the best for you. And also, you have to know that you are capable. If that dream's inside of, outside of you, you are capable to reach it. You just have to believe and let go of all those thoughts that stop you, that inhibit you from reaching it. Because once you, once you just believe, you're in a state of just being. You're not forcing anything to happen. And I remember like trying to force things to be great. Like I remember not being able to speak on camera. Literally, my throat would, would close up because I would get so nervous. And when I just started just being and flowing, I remember things would come out of my mouth and stories. And I'm like, wow, I just said that. I did good. <laughs> so believing in yourself is key. So I ask everybody what their word is. And I ask what your, your word, your favorite word is right now. And you said love. Mm 
So tell me what that I means do. to you right love, now. Uh, love means so much to me because it is it is something that we're born with. Like you, we're born with the right to love. We're born, you know, with love. Um, I actually wrote some notes here because, you know, I, I'm old and I forget stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so important, that word for me, because in, in, in family and relationships, when I love, I'm 100% all in. And it's, a, it's our innate right as human beings to love and be loved. And we shouldn't let anything else make us feel like we're unlovable, like we're not worthy. So that's my word. That's my goal in life to have that 100% pure love. And I think sometimes we train ourselves to, to think that if we go into a relationship that things should be magical right away or work out right away. And if there's a problem, we just leave. But it's like going to the gym and expecting the first day to get a six pack like that's that's not going to happen you have to put the work in you have to put the practice in to to be with that person just being with them hanging out with them without maybe even having conversations being in their presence to put in the work to holding holding space to have difficult conversations to investigating their characters so love is so huge for me because your partner's in a funk are you going to leave because I know I've gotten in funk so I think true true love works through all of that obviously if there's toxic you know traits if someone's not being honest with you if someone is being deceitful there is definitely you know reasons to walk out to to not stick it through 100 percent pure love to me is the ultimate reason why we do things in life whether so, it's romantic or with family and well speaking of kind of romantic friend relationships or even friendships i'm sure there's an added layer of I don't know if you would call it skepticism or not, as you're a public figure. I mean, you have your own entertainment segment in Atlanta. Yours was the first, and now others have been popping up, which I can't believe yours was the first. That's crazy with Atlanta <laughs> being Black Hollywood. It's so crazy yeah. yours was the first. But how does that layer into the potential for relationships or even new friendships? Well, now I guess, you know, it's so funny that I have to even consider that because I never thought myself like oh, a celebrity, but definitely you don't want people approaching you for the wrong reasons and not because Atlanta is the new Hollywood. Um, you, you do have this part of the society of the social circle that wants to be put on. So you have to be very skeptical of who, of their, of who approaches you and what their intentions are. So one, typically because of what I've been through, it's very hard for me to trust anyway. So I already have like a, an armored, <laughs> armored layer. But what I've learned from the universe too is just to trust in it because ultimately the universe is best for you. And if you trust, then and anything that happens, whether you think it's bad or good, you always learn a lesson from it. Obviously, don't let everyone into your energy, protect your energy. Not everyone deserves it. I feel like the woman that I am now, this self-aware, confident woman who wants to, um, who works out of love and gratitude, not every, not every person, oh, not every friend deserves it or every person, this shit keeps messing up. Um, not every person deserves it. So I'm going to be very cautious of who I pour myself into. But I also try to not hold back on who I am. Like, I, I don't do it like, okay, this person doesn't get it, but this person does. I, I just try to be authentically me, no matter who is around. But not everybody's going to get the same energy if I see that they don't want the best for me. Gotcha. Well, now I go into the questions that I ask everybody. 
And the first one is, what do you wish you would have known when you started out? What I wish I would have known, that the magic was in me all along. I didn't have to look for it in other places or in anyone else, that the magic was in me all along. What are you curious about right now? I am curious about just life and people and community, especially in this time of coronavirus. I'm curious to see the lessons that we're going to get out of it. I'm curious to see if we're going to stay in harmony, if we're going to be respectful and loving to the earth, if we're going to be kind and compassionate towards each other. And I'm curious and I'm looking forward to like, you know, finding real love. (laughs) So whether, I, I love that, whether professionally or personally, failure is something that teaches us What is something that you've failed at? You know, I don't consider anything really a failure because I think anything where we quote unquote good or bad really shapes us and we get big lessons from from challenging times. It's not the good fun times that give us character. It's the the struggles that I feel give us character. So I don't consider anything a failure. What can always make you smile no matter what mood you're in. Um, my kid, every time that I FaceTime her, we FaceTime like 20 times a day. And, she, and, I, and I call her and she's like, mommy, just that word lights me up. Okay. I love that. I mean, because I know that's true. I know. Yeah, how, I so know how much you Just that daughter. word hearing mommy and, and the tone in which she says it just stirs, like stirs something in my stomach. And I feel everything from like the neck down. It's amazing. Okay, I, I forget the place, and I don't know if this is the same place that you would answer this. What is your go-to order at your favorite Atlanta restaurant? So I know where we went. I forget the name of it. I don't know if that's where you would say. And if we were, if I went to go visit you in Jersey, what are both places? Like, what am I going to order? Where are we going to go, and what am I going to order? Okay, so my favorite food, comfort food, and this is crazy, is Indian food. So if I am feeling like I want to pick me up in Atlanta, I'm going to order some chicken tikka masala, some chana masala, and of some garlic naan. Love it. So yummy. It makes me feel good. I feel like in a past life, I was, you know, some kind of person that lived in India. In Jersey, my go-to food, my comfort food, because I feel like it's, I haven't found any other city or state that has it the best is um, empanadas, Colombian empanadas. They're so good there. And I hardly eat red meat. But when I go there, I can eat like 10 of them in a row. <laughs> and if I was with you, girl, I'll get some hot pasta tacos. <laughs> it's like, a, <laughs> I know you need to come visit me in San Diego. There's a lot of tacos. We can go to Tijuana. I'm only like a 20, I'm 20 minutes from the border. Yeah, I've been to San Diego before before you lived there when you were in Texas still. And girl, you can get a platter of all these tacos with rice and beans for like two ninety nine. I mean, you said the price went up, but whatever. I remember the two ninety nine. That that filled my soul. Yeah. <laughs> it was and a whole vibe. The final question: Wine, red, red, white, or rosé, and what kind? I love red wine, and I like Pinot Noir. It's my favorite. Astrid, I love you so much. I'm so happy that you finally too. did this. I know it took forever, but I love you so much. And I'm so happy that I was able to do this and that you were able to share. I got to know even more of you than a lot of this I think I knew, but I got to know even so much more about you than I already know. And I, and I love that. And I appreciate you being so open. 
Thank you, girl. Thank you for thinking of me as a guest. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for staying in touch all these years. Thank you for helping me through my Bell's palsy and running with me when I had to close one eye with my hand so the wind wouldn't hit the eyeball. <laughs> Anything. That's what friends are for. And until next time, mi gente, saludos. Salud. <laughs> Bye, girl. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Smith podcast. We wanted to make sure we provided some resources for you to be able to donate or learn more information on Black Lives Matter. So make sure to check out the show notes. Also, please make sure to visit your local Black-owned businesses and support. Often, a quick Google search will give you plenty of places to choose from. Do you have a story that needs to be told or know someone who does? then please reach out to me via my social media channels. You can reach me at, on Instagram at The Wine and Chisme, on Facebook and LinkedIn at The Wine and Chisme Podcast. I want to hear your story. Remember, if you want to hear more of The Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.